Built Not Born, episode 14. I'm Joe Chicarone. Thank you for joining us. Built Not Born is the podcast where each episode we interview everyday people living remarkable lives. Our guests have made their impact from the boardroom to the battlefield, from the jujitsu mat to the field of medicine. Today's guest is Dr. David Meltzer. David Meltzer is a U.S. Army veteran of the Iraq War and an optometrist at Salis University in Philadelphia. David Meltzer has literally looked into the eyes of killers and lived to tell the stories. David is a native of Rockville, Maryland. After spending the better part of his high school days skipping school and getting bad grades, he was ultimately rejected by the University of Maryland to attend college there. So, at 17 years old, and on a whim, David decided to join the Army, where he was assigned to a healthcare unit. After his Army training, and then attending optometry school, and also Hahnemann University, David found himself being shipped off to Iraq as part of a surgical team attached to the U.S. Army's 1st Armored Division. Being one of the only few eye doctors early on in the Iraq War in theater, David frequently got calls to treat not only injured members of the U.S. Armed Services, but high-value prisoners after they were captured and needed medical care. David treated multiple members of the infamous Iraqi deck of cards, including none other than the ace of spades, Saddam Hussein himself. David also treated Saddam's top general, Chemical Ali, and Iraq's foreign minister and chief propagandist, Tariq Aziz. David describes what happened the time when Chemical Ali, known for using chemical weapons against the Kurdish people of Iraq, came face-to-face in a hallway with a Kurdish translator who was working with the American forces and whose family was killed in those attacks. David also tells us about the time he was called to a supermax prison to treat Saddam Hussein only a few days after he was captured. After the war, David talks about the multiple leaders he was called to treat during his time at Walter Reed Hospital, including then Vice President Joe Biden. David and I also discuss his time treating patients at the U.S. Military Academy at West Point and how he started the sports vision program for the cadets there. David and I also discuss how he got connected to Dr. Dan Levy, a thought leader in the field of vision, and how that collaboration has led David Meltzer to become the spring training eye doctor to multiple major league sports teams like the Boston Red Sox, Houston Astros, Minnesota Twins, and Chicago Cubs. We end our chat on how David and the Injured Warriors program got involved with the Philadelphia Flyers and how he takes the ice against some NHL legends like John LeClaire, Mark Howe, and Danny Bruyere. We wrap things up on his thoughts on why he believes high school students of today could really benefit from the military service, the kind that he was given that changed his life. So, thank you for listening. If you like what you hear, please hit the subscribe button. We have a bunch of cool interviews like this one to come. Enjoy my conversation with Dr. David Meltzer, Iraqi war veteran, hockey player, and eye doctor to the famous and infamous. And remember, life is built, not born. Dr. David Meltzer, welcome to the show. Thank you for having me. For our listeners who may not be familiar with you and your work, 
Who are you and what do you do? Currently, I work at Salis University, Pennsylvania College of Optometry as an assistant professor for the clinic teaching students how to become an eye doctor. Prior to that, I was in the Army for 20 years, also as an eye doctor. I want to get into your Army service in a moment, but before we do, where did you grow up? I grew up in Rockville, Maryland, right outside of D.C. If you think back to when you were little, say 10 years old, what did it look like around the dinner table for you? I had two older brothers, my dad and my mom. We used to eat dinner as a family every night, and it was everybody makes fun of me because I eat so fast now. Had to eat fast so I could get any leftovers that there might be so my dad or my brothers wouldn't get it. Looking back to your childhood, what's the most powerful memory you remember? That's a good question. We'll get into this more later on, my high school days, getting bad grades for the first time. That's what eventually got me into the army. And that's what changed my life forever. Let's go from there. So you got bad grades. Describe bad grades to us. (laughs) Bad grades, meaning I shouldn't have graduated high school and I'm still surprised I did. My junior and senior year, I skipped almost every day. Now, not the full day, but I skipped probably all the important classes. So you skipped class. What were you doing when you skipped class? Went home, went back to bed, went out with my friends. I wasn't doing anything stupid. I certainly didn't do anything illegal, any drugs, any of that stuff. It's just I went home and or went out with my friends and hung out. Don't ask me what possessed me to start skipping school. Bad grades in, in my school, it wasn't Fs, it was Es. So Ds and Es. So you had two years of bad grades for skipping school. How did that lead to the Army? I couldn't get into college. My I applied to one college, University of Maryland. Couldn't get in. One day after school or one day outside the school, I saw a military recruiter there and I, I didn't get along with my parents. And he caught me on a good day. My friends asked me actually before, hey, we've talked, would we ever join the military? And I was like, no, heck no, I wouldn't join the military. But he caught me on a good day. I was not very happy with my parents. And I I went into their office, listened to the the spiel and said, yeah, let's join the army. And I was 17 at the time. So he needed approval of my parents for me to sign because you need to be 18. So I brought him home and my parents were not happy. Tried to get me to go to the community college two blocks up the street. I'm thinking to myself, shoot, that's just 13th grade. What what would be the difference? So I signed up for the army and they, they signed. So you signed up for the army. Your parents signed off. Where was your first step? Where'd you go? Actually, I had a long wait. So I was in the delayed entry program. I was 17. So I had to wait till I graduated high school. And actually my senior year of high school, I broke my finger when I was to go ship off to boot camp. They give you a physical. I failed that physical because of my broken finger. So I actually had to sign up again. So I'll tell people I was dumb enough to sign up twice. So I I signed up a second time. I think I waited a a total of 10 months before I finally went in. But I finally went in on November 12th of uh, 1992. First place was boot camp Fort Jackson, South Carolina. And I was 18 years old. So you get there, you go through boot camp. What were you assigned to after boot camp? I went to my AIT. That was Fort Sam Houston. So that's another good thing for me. So my initial enlistment, I I told the recruiter that, hey, I wanted to be in the healthcare because I wanted to be a physical therapist. 
or communications because I would love broadcasting sports. When I was a naive 18 year old, so he put me in communications, which was not anything remotely (laughs) broadcasting sports or anything. It was some radio mechanic or something like that. But I guess, thank goodness I broke my finger and couldn't go in. So then the next time I signed up, I said, look, I'm only signing up for healthcare. So I signed up as a healthcare inspector, a preventive medicine specialist, went to Fort Sam Houston for four and a half months. And then from there, I went to my first active duty station at Fort Lee, Virginia. At some point, you wind up as an eye doctor. Right. So take us from that point to where you started. You, you go from failing out of high school, I'm not failing out, but not showing up for high school, right. going to the Army. And then how do you wind up as an optometrist? So that's a great question. From May of 93... When I got stationed at Fort Lee, Virginia, that's about two and a half hours from my parents' house. After I got stationed there, there was a girl I met in high school. The first time I saw her, I was walking down the stairwell with one of my friends. And I told him, I was like, that's the girl I'm going to marry. And uh, the first time I met her was I was skipping school. So took me a while to tell my kids that, by the way. So we got stationed in, in Fort Lee and I was like, you know what? I decided to write her a letter. And then in August of 1993, we started dating and her father was working in the optometry business. So not as an optometrist, but he was the district manager for an optical company. And so I met a lot of eye doctors through them. And I was like, you know what? I'm going to become an eye doc. So I, I started going to college while in the army and I was getting straight A. And then in 1996, after my enlistment ended, I went to Hahnemann University here in Philadelphia, continued to get straight A's, went to applied to Pennsylvania College of Optometry and I graduated in 02. Take us from there. What's your next step? So as a first year student at Pennsylvania College of Optometry, I was sitting in class. And actually, when I got out of enlisted, I said I'd never go back into the army. But then my first year of optometry school, I was sitting next to somebody and they were talking about the health professional scholarship program. And I came home to my then fiance and said, what do you think if we join the army again, this time as an officer? So I applied for the HPSP program, got selected got a three-year scholarship to optometry school, which was very nice because, you know, my last year of optometry school, when everybody is looking for jobs, I already had mine. As soon as graduation happened, come July of 2002, I went back to this time officer boot camp and was now a captain in the army. So you said summer 2002, 9-11 is probably six, seven months before that. You graduate officer boot camp. Take us from there. Yeah, it's, it's funny because like everybody, I remember where I was on September 11th. And I remember, this goes back a little bit. I remember I was in clinic and just somebody says an airplane crashed into the Sears Tower in New York. And me and my friend are like, Sears Tower in New York? What are you talking about? The Sears Tower is in Chicago. Anyway, so after officer boot camp, my first duty station is in Germany. And I was talking with the person I'm supposed to replace prior to even getting to Germany. And he's, hey, we're going to be going somewhere very quickly as soon as you get here, which was true. I got to Germany very end of September of 2002. 
The war started March of 03 and my division, I was part of first armored division. We actually, I call it the cleanup crew. So we were the second wave. I got to Kuwait the beginning of May of 03. And then we drove up into Iraq in May of 03. So roughly a month and a half, two months after the war started. The commanding general of the first ID back then was Ray Ardonio, wasn't it? First ID, I don't know. I was first AD. It was okay. it was Major General Sanchez at the time, and then Brigadier General Dempsey, who was promoted to Major General Dempsey, who uh, eventually became four star and the Army Chief of Staff. Wow. So you're in Germany. What part of Germany are you? Holder, Germany, which is it was about 20, 25 minutes north of Ramstein, okay. the Air Force Base. So then how do you assemble in Kuwait? What happens there? How do you guys go from Germany? We all met my small unit. So I was part of the 123rd Main Support Battalion. So we're supporting the infantry and armor units. So we all meet up in Dexheim, which is where the base, and then we convoy down to Ramstein. We load up on a commercial plane and fly us down to Kuwait. On Kuwait, we, they acclimate us to the temperature. It's funny because on the TV, it's saying 120 degrees. Our thermometer said 150 degrees on a daily basis. It, it's miserable. So we're acclimating in Kuwait for about two weeks before actually driving up into Iraq. And then we were in small convoys. There was many convoys that would drive up there. It wasn't just one humongous convoy of first armored division. And then they had pre-positioned in different places. What's 150 degrees feel like the first time you feel it? <laughs> I'll tell you, I wish I can keep that temperature in my body right now because then this 95 wouldn't be so bad. Our bathrooms were the porta johns. No one wanted to use a porta john. I, I shouldn't even say that. At first we had like just the barrels and the wood, like an outhouse kind of thing. And they're burning the uh, waste. But then eventually we got porta johns but no one wanted to use those toilets during the day you either wanted to go in the early morning or late at night when it's somewhat cooled off but 150 you would walk and it's humid i was in baghdad right near the two big rivers the tigris and the um, euphrates you would walk out and immediately you'd be sweating you're in kuwait what are you riding to go from kuwait into iraq what, what are you on Trans- I'm, on a Humvee. I'm on a Humvee. Okay. So how do you know when you're first in Iraq? Does someone make an announcement or how do you realize we're no longer in Kuwait? We're in a forward area. Yeah, actually, that's a good question. I don't even know. It all looks the same. We we started in at, at night, night. I don't remember if we started at dusk or dawn, actually, but it was dark. So I don't even know. <laughs> Where's your first stop in Iraq? About an hour south of Baghdad. We set up and we called it Camp Dogwood. I don't know actually the location it was, but it, I know it was about an hour south of Baghdad. And all it was a big, it was desert. It was a big dust bowl. We popped a bunch of tents. Definitely not the uh, Four Seasons, you're saying? Definitely not the Four Seasons. <laughs> not even the Fairfield. It's not even a uh, hostel. <laughs> wow. So you're there. So when's the first time you engaged or, or saw the enemy? How, how long did it take you to say, wow, there's people here that don't want us to be here? The good thing for me, I, I know on our convoy, we had some issues. We had people that were RPG'd and thank goodness they didn't go off. I guess they were duds, you call them. And of course, you never know when the duds are, but we got lucky with that. I never really got attacked otherwise. 
But when I was on the airport, I was co-located with the forward surgical team and we would get tons and tons of injured soldiers, injured civilians. I, the planes that were taken off, they would get rockets shot at them all the time. You never know when those are where or when those are going to land or even if they're going to hit the plane. So the one time I feared for my life was actually towards the very end of my deployment. It was actually the day before we were supposed to leave Iraq and drive back to Kuwait. My friends and I, we go down to the mess hall, which it was nice because a mess hall was eventually built that brought in good food. It wasn't the MREs that we were eating for a lot of the, the deployment, but there was a wall to the outside about a hundred yards behind us. And we hear small arms fire and we're just medical people. So there's people running to the wall, the infantry guys, and we're like, all right, cool. They'll take care of it. And we're in line waiting for food. We finally get in, grab our food, have a seat. And then there's a boom and uh, someone yells, get down. And we all get down and then they yell, get out. And we get out and it's like a movie at that point. We load our weapons, actually chamber rounds. And that's the only time I've ever chambered around other than the range. And then we're hiding behind just anything, like looking around to see, hey, is somebody coming? So, and, and then we're trying to get to our vehicle and back, get back to our base. How did that particular situation end? How'd you know it was all clear? We were eventually told when we got back to our base, we were hiding out in like a bomb shelter because they were launching mortars and everything over. So we were in bomb shelters and eventually somebody said it's the threat is taken care of. And also that day, that's when we were extended an extra three months in country too. So I spent the full year, almost a year and three months there. So total time in Iraq, 15 months? 15 months minus okay. two weeks for coming for R&R. R&R, what do you do for R&R in Iraq? What do you do? Where, where do you go? <laughs> That's a great question. When I first deployed again, so I was part of Operation Iraqi Freedom, the, the very beginning of the war. At first, there was no plans for any vacation or R&R or anything like that, rest and relaxation, by the way. So... They did send several people down to Qatar for a couple days for R&R. But then as we were getting like four or five months in, they were like, you know what? We're going to start sending people to wherever they want. So we'll send them back to Europe or back to the United States for two weeks if they want. I got lucky. I got two weeks right at the six month point, right around Thanksgiving. And they flew me back to Maryland because that's where my wife was at the time, my wife and my daughter. So I got home all the way back to Maryland and I was there for two weeks. You're in Baghdad, those 15 months. Right. And you're with the surgical team. What type of medical services are you providing? What are you doing on a daily basis? The main thing we're there for is to give glasses to the soldiers. So give them a prescription, make glasses and make sure that they can see. But we'd have tons of foreign bodies, lots of eye injuries. I would send guys back from Iraq, back to Kuwait, all the way back to the United States with some eye injuries, whether it's from shrapnel or just a stupid contact lens injury. Patients would wear contact lenses out there. The craziest thing I've ever had is one of the things we have to do as healthcare 
providers is we have to take care of the prisoners there too. So I was a quarter of a mile from the big prison where we kept high value detainees as we called them. And I don't know if you've ever seen the card deck that would sure have all, I saw the Ace of Spades, Saddam Hussein, the King of Spades, Chemical Ali, Tariq Aziz, who I think is another spade. Those are the three big guys. I've seen guys like the guy in charge of their nuclear weapons. Who, and some of them, oh yeah, I went to school at Harvard or Princeton. I'm like, oh, that's fantastic. I'm so thrilled we taught you how to do all this stuff you're doing. But I'll tell you like Chemical Ali, right? So we were the only two iDocs that people were able to get to in the Baghdad. We don't even know where the other one, I know there was a couple way up north. There was multiple around, but I don't know where they were. So being the only iDocs for many miles and easy to get to, whenever I had the prisoners come to our little office, as you want to call it, even though it was a rundown building, a lot of the other commanders and everybody would try coming into our office and see which prisoner we're seeing that day. (laughs) So I'll tell you like Chemical Ali, right? When he came in and I had no idea that it was Chemical Ali. My translator, I guess, asked his name. And of course, he's not going to say, hey, my name is Chemical Ali. No, he says his name (laughs) and they tell me it's Chemical Ali. And my translator is freaking out because they usually would come in a hooded mask because they don't want to show them just in case if they break out or something happens, they don't want to show them the terrain or where they're going or where they're coming and what our base looks like. But first, my my translator is freaking out. She's not thrilled to be translating for Chemical Ali. And then he says he has to go to the bathroom. So then he walks out and he's with the armed guards going to the uh, bathroom and they should have put a mask on him. But one of the other translators who was Kurdish is even freaking out even more because Chemical Ali killed his family. And then Saddam Hussein, Saddam Hussein, I went to him. So the way that transpired is it's early Sunday morning. I'm, I'm still in bed. It's not yet time to get up and go to work or no patience. And there's a knock on our door. I open it up and the guy says, hey, I'm the doc for the prisoners. And I have a patient who I can't tell you his name, but you're going to want to see him. And this was a couple of days after Saddam Hussein was caught. So I knew exactly who it was. And I'm like, yeah, let's schedule it up. He's, you have to come down there. He's not coming here. I'm like, yeah, no problem. So yeah, Saddam Hussein, he was in the cell all by himself in a hallway all by himself. No one knew he was there. All right. I'm going to take a big step back here. I'll unpack this slowly. So First off, let's go to Chemical Ali. You're there. He, from what I remember, he gassed the Kurds, killed thousands and thousands of Kurds up north. Yep. He's captured. He comes to your clinic. First off, your translator, who's Iraqi, yep. come all of a sudden, sees him, starts freaking out because he's from what I've read that he was probably the second most powerful person in Iraq at one point. Yep. He's there. Yep. And then she your translator realizes it's chemical Ali. What's the facial expressions? What's going on with your translator? So the translator in my office, surprisingly, was very professional. She looked, she wouldn't get next to him. I'll tell you that. She was back a ways and 
looking shocked that it was Chemical Ali, the Kurdish translator. He wasn't my translator that day. He was outside. He just happened to be walking out right outside the bathrooms when he was walking to the bathrooms and, and he just started screaming and wanted to kill him and this and that. I tell a lot of people, I, I was the eye doctor for the Adolf Hitler of our time, which is weird. So I'm just trying to look through the world through that Kurdish translator. They're walking down the hallway to go to the bathroom, grab a snack, whatever they're doing right. in that hallway. Right. And then Chemical Ali, you're treating him. Chemical Ali says, wait, I have to go to the bathroom. So yep. the armed guards grab him. They walk out of the hallway and they happen to cross paths with the Kurdish translator. That's right. That's right. And the Kurdish translator unexpectedly comes face to face with the person who killed all their family. That's right. And then what does the Kurdish translator do? He just starts yelling. He doesn't have a weapon. If he did, I don't know what would have happened. Wow. But I mean, he just starts yelling and screaming at him. And the armed guards, of course, are going to try and get Chemical Ali and away from him as quick as possible. Their mistake was that they should have put the hood back on him. And then it would have never happened. From your recollection, Chemical Ali, have any reaction from the person freaking out right in front of him? Nope. Yeah. Stone Cold Killer. Yeah. Absolutely. Yep. Wow. And I will tell everybody also, these people, if you didn't know who they were, unfortunately, they are all very nice people. If you had no idea who Chemical Ali is, Saddam Hussein, any of these other guys, they're all nice people. Wow. So leaving Chemical Ali, we'll move up. We'll move up to the Ace of Spades, Saddam. You're in your office. And then you get a knock on the door, take us back there, walk us through how you go. I was actually in my bedroom, in my little hooch. I was in my cot and yeah, it was early Sunday morning. It must've been like five, six o'clock in the morning. And yeah, there's a knock on the door and I open it up and he just tells me, Hey, I'm the doc for the prison down the road. And I have a prisoner that I can't tell you his name, but you're going to want to see. And uh, he needs to be seen. I knew exactly who he was talking about because I knew the prison was there. I knew that's where they kept the high value detainees because I've seen them already, some of them. And, and we scheduled a day. I said, yeah, let's schedule up a day. <laughs> and I had to go to him. He didn't come. He, they would not take him out. He would not come to me. So you go from your office to this obviously super max high security prison somewhere right. in Iraq. Right. What's it like to go from, hey, I'm outside the prison to I'm in front of Saddam? How many layers? What are you walking through to get to him at that point? You first, they wouldn't let me take. So everywhere we went, we have to take our weapons and our rounds. So anytime I left my little FOB, forward operating base, we take our weapons and our rounds. So when I get to the prison, they take my weapons and my rounds and any other, if I had a bayonet or any other weapons, they're taking all that stuff. So there's the first layer when you first drive into their fob, the prison fob. And there's another layer when they're taking your weapons to house those safely. Then there's the initial prison population, I guess, like the prison yard where the, the most of the prisoners are. And then you, I, it's even another layer where Saddam was. Like I said, he's all by himself in a cell all by himself in a hall all by himself. No one knew he was there except for the guards, the FBI agent, and now me. 
So they opened the door that you walk into his cell, I take it? So I didn't actually go into his cell. We did it in the hallway where his cell was. Okay. So he comes out of his cell. I'm in the hallway. That's where we do the exam. Take me through that. So the guards or whoever lets you through the hallway. At right. this point, did they tell you it's Saddam? Do you know you're treating Saddam Hussein right now? When I saw him, I knew it was him. I knew what he looked sure, like. Sure, but walking in. But I, I don't know if they ever did tell me. They must have. It was very much implied. I knew who I was going to see. I don't know if they ever told me. Yeah. He doesn't have a name tag on. He doesn't he's say, not, he, oh, no, he was, hello, I'm Saddam. I'll tell you, I still have his prescription. He's HVD1001. So you go in. You so you're waiting in the hallway. They bring him out. They see is yep. a hood, cuffs. He come out in pajamas. What's it look like when he walks? He out? had the. He's not cuffed. He's he's an old man. He's tired. He's beaten. He knows it. He's just in that white robish thing. I mean, with the long gray beard, gray hair, and he he just looked tired to me. He he looked like yeah, I know what's gonna come. I, I'm done with this. I let's just get it over with. So you walk out. Is he? say hello? Is he like silent? Great question. So it's actually funny because at the time I was reading a Jack Higgins book. I, I don't remember which book it was, but it was funny because in the book he was talking about Saddam Hussein and how he said he doesn't like speaking English to people he doesn't know. And then I get there and I meet him and it, it was true. I'm like, how the heck author know this unless he met him? But the FBI agent was like, yeah, he probably won't speak English to you, but he knows English. So the FBI was the translator. But at the end, he did say thank you and shook my hand. Wow. So you shook Saddam Hussein's hand at the end. If I was smart, I would have gotten his autograph <laughs> on his glasses prescription. <laughs> wow. That's remarkable. Both those stories. And go all back to Tariq Aziz. From my understanding, he was like the, the, the he was like the press guy. He he was like that total propaganda person. Yep. What was the interaction like him like? He was a character from what I remember seeing and reading. Yeah, he has some huge thick glasses too. The amazing thing with him is, is he didn't believe in the same thing as those guys. He was not the same religion as them, is which makes it remarkable that he was able to get so high up with them. But I don't remember him speaking any English at all to me. And, and the, with the propaganda, it's funny. Tariq Aziz, I knew it was him. He amazed me because he was not the same religion, but was able to get so high. But he was, he didn't really have anything to say to me, but their propaganda, they, you would see murals in some of their public places, which from the first war desert storm, desert shield that had the Iraqis beating the Americans in the war. All their propaganda was everything about them beating the Americans. I just Googled him real quick. And he, he said, really thick glasses. And he's some sort of off-sec Christian. So, right. Wow. Interesting. Interesting. And But you don't remember much of an interaction, him not speaking much. Yeah, he didn't speak any English to me. Thank you for sharing that story about Saddam and Chemical Ali and Tariq Aziz. That is wild. Any other VIPs you, you, you treated? Yes. Yeah, so at Walter Reed, we had a VIP clinic and uh, I saw countless senators, countless congressmen, countless army or military chiefs of staff, cabinet members. But the uh, I did see he wasn't president at the time. He was vice president, but Biden, which was very cool. And, and it was cool because they called me up in clinic and they said, hey, you got to come to the White House and see the vice president. <laughs> so I had to cancel my patients for the day and 
go down there. And this was a day or two before the State of the Union address. And I don't know if you recall when Biden wore sunglasses in the State of the Union address in the background, and they actually mentioned him what the problem was because he was wearing the sunglasses. And I I went down there and I'm like, man, I, I wish I could help you, but there's nothing I can do for the problem he had. Wow. Um, so you're in clinic at Walter Reed Hospital. Yep. And then you get someone knocks on the door and just says, you got to go to the White House. That's right. And then you just, patients are canceled. Take us from there. You walk over, you take a cab or they drive you. How does that happen? Well, so they put me on the list to uh, get in and I took the subway down and I hopped on the subway and got down there. Ring the doorbell. You go to the gate. You go to the door and you, the gate and they say, okay, what's your name? You're on the list and they walk you in and they escort you to where you need to be. So I'm in the optometry lane that's there and I'm waiting for him for a few minutes and then he comes walking in. And yeah, it's the, like I said at the beginning, I wanted to be a physical therapist when I was in high school because I wanted to work in sports. Here I am an eye doctor, Chemical Ali, Saddam Hussein, President Biden, many other senators, congressmen, and leaders of our country. And also I'm going to spring training with the Red Sox, the Cubs, the Twins, the Astros, the Indians. Wow. That's phenomenal. Last question about the White House. You go into some medical exam room they bring you into? Well, we have an optometry lane there. There's actual full-time optometry lane at the White House. Not that we have an eye doc there full time. We would go there once a month and see patients, but the lane would stay there. That's thank you for sharing that. Great story. And moving on, is there any other story you'd like to share during that time to say this happened during those fifteen months that that we didn't cover? I can tell you that's where I learned how to be an eye doctor. I graduated in May of two thousand two from optometry school. You don't get your license for a couple months. I got my license, I think, in July, but I was in boot camp at the time, so I didn't start actually practicing optometry at the military base in Germany till probably November of o two. And then six months later, I'm in Iraq. So when I got to Germany, they're training us up to go to war. So I'm not really in clinic all that much because I have to go to all the training events to prepare for war. I was there at the very beginning of the war. So we had no showers. At first we had no bathrooms and I would go a week without showering at times. I had only two uniforms at for the first 10 months. And like I said, it was 150 degrees. So those uniforms, just think how smelly and disgusting they were. And what's even more funny is are our, the people that did the laundry there, it used to come smelling even worse back to us. And they had these flies there. The, the most weird thing I've ever seen is they had these flies in Iraq that they would carry their larvae on their feet. I had a patient come in one time and they had a red eye. So I, I was like, okay, they have some sort of red eye, some viral thing or something. So I look in their eye and I see mucus or what I thought was mucus on their eye. So I grab a Q-tip to try and take it off. And then it starts running away from me. I'm like, I jump back. I'm like, holy moly, the mucus is <laughs> running away. It turned out it was fly larva. So this was our unit that did everybody's laundry had these disgusting flies that would drop their larva on. 
And I was like, oh, this is fantastic, man. What, what amazing training. Take us back. All right, do you remember your last day in Iraq? I remember my last days in Kuwait, my last day in Iraq. It, yeah, I can tell you it was a thrill that we were finally getting in the truck and driving out of there because like I said, three months before that was the scariest day of my life mm. when we were getting attacked. And the day we were told you guys get to stay an extra three months. So all I can tell you is relief. We're getting in the truck and rolling out of here. You get back to Kuwait. How long are you there before you head head out? We were in Kuwait another two weeks. What goes on during those two weeks? We go th- through like cleaning our equipment, some debriefing stuff. Really, the biggest thing for me as an IDOC is I was just waiting on a, a free seat on a plane to get home because I would help them clean the equipment and all that stuff. But that was mostly out of me volunteering because they usually never ask the officers to come help do that stuff, but we had nothing else to do. So we went and helped them. Can you remember what it was like getting on the plane in Kuwait for the last time? More relief. It's actually happening that we're going home for good. Uh, where, where are you going? Where do you land? Back in Ramstein, Germany. Okay. Well, first of all, thank you for your service and thank you for sharing those stories. Phenomenal. Fast forward a little bit here. I see you do some work with the Army at West Point. I did. That was my last duty station. How do you wind up in West Point and what kind of work did you do there? That was my last duty station in the Army. I was I was assigned there. And that, to me, is one of the best bases in the military. The way I actually got assigned there is my one of my kids was ready for their bat mitzvah or getting ready. And they had a synagogue on base. So they gave me the assignment there. It was great working with all the future leaders of the military. And then it's a college too. So I got to work with their sports teams as well. And that's where I'm going to plug one of my friends, Dr. Dan Labby. I wanted to try and set up a sports vision program at West Point. And I happened to read an article written by who now is my friend. And I called him up just on a whim. I called him up and he was such a pleasure to talk to. And then he invited me to go to spring training with the Red Sox with him. He, he is an IDOC for multiple Major League Baseball teams, him and his partner. So I went to spring training with the Red Sox. And then I started my sports vision program at West Point, seeing working with the rifle team, the Army hockey team, the Army baseball team, and any other team that wanted to come in. But it was phenomenal. I would be in the dugout with the baseball team as an officer representative. I would be on the bench of the Army hockey team as an officer representative, which was awesome. So you started the sports vision program at West Point. Yep. Take us back to the Red Sox. What was your involvement with them? My friend goes down to these teams and during physicals time at the beginning of spring training, we'll do eye exams. Not, we'll do eye screenings on them. So we'll go down and we'll see these players and I would help him do different tests on the players. So you started the sports vision program at West Point, even got involved with the Boston Red Sox work doing doing their eye screenings. Really cool. Any lessons you learned through starting that program, like life lessons you could pass on? Like, wow, I learned this from starting that endeavor. I mean, I'm a little biased, right? But don't discount your vision. It's amazing because I grew up playing sports. I grew up playing baseball, hockey, basketball, soccer. And I have a small glasses prescription, but I never wore them. I never wore them playing any sport. And it's funny how 
athletes, they're like, my arm is not a hundred percent. So I'm not going to pitch or my legs or my body is not a hundred percent. So I'm not going to do this. Why do you not play your sport a hundred percent? If your arm or legs or body is not a hundred percent, but you'll go in there playing your sport without your eyes being a hundred percent. These are high level athletes. We want them seeing as best as they possibly can, not like just the average person on the street who works a desk job. There was a recent interview I listened to, and they were talking about taking you know things for granted uh, in right. like your basic everyday things. And there's, there's so many gifts that healthy people have, but someone said, could you imagine not being able to see right. like how much you would miss that if they took it away? And then that's probably your eyesight is something that the average person, I know me included, takes for granted on a daily basis. You're right. If someone has a sore elbow, they get treatment, they get PT, they see an orthopedic surgeon. Right. The vision is probably sometimes falls by the wayside. You see it on Major League, Charlie Sheen. I don't know if you remember that movie. Yeah, Charlie yeah, Sheen. Yeah, yeah, yeah. He's throwing a hundred miles an hour, but he's walking <laughs> everyone and they go, here, put these on. They give him the Coke bottle glasses. Like they give him the Tariq Aziz glasses. That's right. And all That's of a sudden right. he's throwing strikes. That's he, right. He grabbed Tariq's glasses and he strikes and he's striking everyone out. So funny. Just a couple questions to get to know you a little bit better when you need to recharge your mind and body what do you do hockey what position not goalie forward so i actually play on a vet disabled hockey team the philadelphia flyers warriors and i'll tell you i'm like a kid man it's we're part of the philadelphia flyers organization brad marsh is our coach we played the flyers alumni two weeks ago and i started the game against lined up opposite John LeClaire at the faceoff circle, who I have his jersey and still wear to this day. I'm like a little kid playing hockey with with the Flyers organization. We'll be doing training camp with them in, in September timeframe. We have a Warrior Classic where all Warrior hockey teams from around the country will be coming in November, about 35 of them or so. We'll have a big Warrior Classic with all 35 teams for the first, for the Warrior Championship. So I officiate hockey because of my son. He started that. So I got into it with him. I coach hockey. I play hockey. Awesome. And then Brad Marsh, I think maybe the last, I know the last flyer, potentially the last NHL person ever not to wear a helmet. So, so I thought the same thing, but it's actually Craig McTavish who was after him. Oh, that's right. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. Over a thousand games in the NHL. He is awesome. He's a great guy. And then John LeClaire, just Legion of Doom line. Amazing. John LeClaire, Mark Howe. They, those were, the, to me, Shell Samuelson, Ian LaPerriere. I mean, these were guys that were Danny Briere. I'm on the ice playing with these guys. So you're playing with Briere and you're playing with Samuelson. Yeah. He's yeah. Like six seven with Shell Samuelson. Yeah, six seven, six eight. I mean, you wow. can't get around him. <laughs> yeah, that's a, I think him and Tarion were the biggest. Tarion was there. I never seen was there. Yeah. Wow. That's, that's Robert Esch is the goalie. Really? Big Flyers fan, but I could talk about that forever. That is really cool. So thank you for sharing that. How about what's the first 60 minutes of your day look like? Every day, the first thing I do is eat breakfast. If I don't eat breakfast, I'll be miserable. Eat breakfast and take my dogs out. What is your personal definition of success? Personal definition of success, family happiness. Keep family happiness. That's for me. I don't need a lot of money as long as... My wife and kids and all of us are happy and have a roof above us and food. When you are at your best, what are you doing? I'm just laughing and joking with other people. I like to sing. I don't 
sing in a band or anything like that, but I like to crack jokes and you say a word, you put a song on the radio, I'll probably start singing it. Doesn't matter. I got two daughters. I'll sing high school musical. I'll sing Disney shows, all that stuff. You mentioned your kids. What values do you try to pass on to your kids? Hard work, loyalty, selfless service. There's there's seven values of the army. Selfless service, loyalty. Those two are huge to me. Volunteer your time. Be loyal to your friends and family. Yeah, those are big ones, I think. Is there a book that changed your mind or changed the way you live? Rich Dad, Poor Dad. I read that in Iraq. Actually, me and my three bunkmates, we all read it. Not that I'm rich like Rich Dad, Poor Dad author, Robert Kiyosaki, but made me think differently. Don't work for the man and let your money work for you. So I'm trying to teach my kids that. That's funny. You say that is the first self-help book I ever read. And it's the first book I ever read and said, you know what? I'm going to act differently from here. Yeah, I, I made some tweaks that I'm still following some of those tweaks from that book. It opened your eyes. Thanks for sharing that. Okay. Just two more questions. If you could go back to that dinner table at 10 years old in Maryland and talk to the people sitting around the table, what would you want to tell them? I tell myself, don't change a thing. I tell people all the time that I did it the right way as far as doing bad in high school and doing fantastic in college. I think personally, don't be scared of joining the military. The military changed my life forever. It straightened me out and the military is a great job. If you don't know where you're going in life, don't look past the military. I would tell myself at 10, don't change anything because I got the best wife. I got three great kids. I, I got a great house. I got a retirement now from the military and I have a great job at Salas. What's the most exciting project you're working on now? That is a great question. And, and I'm going to take this back a little bit. So I was at West Point at the time and we had a question given to me and I'm not, it doesn't matter what the question was, doesn't even matter what the answer was, but I gave my answer and the people didn't like the answer. And my friend that I was working with, he's Dave, you're getting up in rank now. So people are going to listen to you. And I'm like, holy moly, you're right. So now I'm out of the army and I'm here in Philadelphia at Salis University. And my father-in-law who still hangs out with some eye doctors, tells me about this startup company and they're building a virtual reality device for the eye care business. It's called Xenon-VR. And I looked into it and it's a product to me that could revolutionize the eye care business. It's going to do multiple tests to help with the eye exam, help speed up the eye exam. So yeah, that's definitely the most exciting thing I'm doing right now. Other than continuing going to spring training with my friend for Major League Baseball. And I've been with the Red Sox after they won a World Series. I've been to the Cubs after they won a World Series. So it's really cool to see these guys after they win a World Series. I just wish I can go with the Phillies after they win a World Series. <laughs> Last question. If you had to get a quote or a tattoo on your body, what would that quote or tattoo say? Probably say, go Flyers. <laughs> Perfect. Go Flyers. I think that is about as good a spot as any to end. Dr. David Meltzer, first off, thank you for joining us. 
Thank you for your service and sharing the stories. If people are looking for you online, where can they find you? Definitely Salus University website or Xenon-VR's website. I'll be on both of those. And I'm on LinkedIn. I'm on Facebook. Dr. David Meltzer, thank you for your time and thank you for sharing your great stories. Really appreciate you joining us on Built Not Born. Yep. Thank you. Thanks for having me.